Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Duncan Kerr. Duncan is a director at the Bolton Arms, a pub based in a 15th century grade two listed building in Old Basing, Basingstoke, Hampshire. Uh, Duncan, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now, um, the main issue that has dominated the headlines throughout 2020 has, of course, been the COVID-19 situation. So I feel it's appropriate that we start our discussion on that topic. Um, it's proven to be such a significant challenges for leaders within all walks of life. But having blighted the hospitality sector, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business? Uh, it's affected us in quite a few ways. And to try to be as fair as possible to the government, initially we were well looked after. Uh, with hindsight, maybe too well. Um, with the strategies such as the furlough scheme and the bounce back loans, uh, which have come to pass, have not been fully thought through by the government. That's in my opinion. Um, we took advantage of the furlough scheme and the bounce back loans. Um, but it's been proven the fact that the, that is going to cause the economy, which in turn will cause us problems in the future, as um, there's a lot of people actually not sticking to the rules. So um, the second one is the one metre distancing requirement um, mm. for internal tables. It means our internal table capacity has dropped from 24 tables that could accommodate 96 people now down to nine tables that can can accommodate 32 customers, which is basically a 66% reduction in maximum seating capacity. However, in reality, fewer people are coming in in groups of four or six, resulting with the number of reservations for couples increasing, which has reduced our mm. actual daily covers even further. So we are currently sat in the position of not making any money but still having to heat, light, and staff the premises, which is not a comfortable position to be in. And just how long do you foresee this situation lasting for? Because even when, obviously, God willing, we do have a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an immediate danger, because of the impact that all of this will have on consumer confidence and the on sort of going anxiety of, that this virus is going to cause, it could still take an awful long time for things to even start reverting to normal and people summoning up the courage to actually go out and eat out in places again. Um. My older sister was a very, very senior member of the nursing staff of this country, and she actually advised 15 years ago that the government, the current government at the time, should have an emergency plan in place to take care of such as a pandemic or indeed uh, an explosion in a nuclear power station where um, hospitals could be erected quickly. It would take between three to 30,000 people. Housing can be made available for those people overnight 
And for the last 15 years, consistent governments have done nothing again, nothing about that. So, the <laughs> and the other one um, point that I'd like to bring up, mm. as far as I know, and as far as I'm aware, and I'm 62 years old, I've been told for the last 20 years when going to the doctors with colds and whatever else, the fact that there's nothing we can do that would actually treat a virus. I think the only time they've ever actually done it successfully, 100% successfully, is for smallpox. But, so why can the government currently say they are developing a vaccine when they've only had one success in the last 100 years? I don't understand that. And I think the government has um, knows more about this than they're saying. What that is, I've got no idea. So therefore, I don't know how long it's going to go on. Um, and I don't know how um, much permanent damage it's going to do to the economy and to people's mental health. Yes, the, the fact that it's going to have on mental health certainly is a huge concern, particularly as this sort of prolonged period of restrictions is um, continuing to rage on. From a leadership point of view, just how important do you view mental health and well-being on the whole, both in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of your stuff as well, especially at an uncertain time like this? That's actually a very, very good question. Um, let's try and answer it another way around. I started my first company 35 years ago at the age of 27, and I've never been in the position of not being able to plan for the future. We've had to change our business model six times since March of this year. Six times. And about four weeks ago, my wife asked me a simple question. What were my plans for the future of the business? And to my horror, I actually heard myself replying, the plan for the future is not to plan, but to react. And that is the most dangerous position for a businessman to be forced into. Mm. Currently, from my point of view, I do not have the confidence in the economy, the stability in the business world, or indeed the government. Um, I don't believe they're in full charge of the situation, and the fact that they keep changing their minds causes total confusion amongst the people of this country, and that affects my staff. My staff are starting to become fatigued because the business they expected, or they were used to, six months ago, they're not dealing with. So um, they're having quiet nights when they should have busy nights, etc., etc. Everything's turned about. Um, and I just think it's going to be a long-term, ongoing problem. And the longer this goes on, the more damage it will do to people's confidence in the future. I can certainly see where you're coming from from uh, that point of view and I do think you're very right in the sense that business has been sucked into a position where it is now having to be reactive as opposed to being proactive and being able to plan for the future. There isn't really a long term to plan for anymore because months and years have essentially gone to 
days and maybe weeks at best because changing guidelines, changing circumstances are coming so, so regularly that business has no other choice but to sort of wait on the changes as and when they come and then react to that. As you say yourselves, you've had to change your business model six times since March. And a lot of business leaders that have come onto the programme have said very similar things in the sense that it's almost like going back to when they first started in business, going back to basics, having to look at new income streams, keep making simple changes. And that isn't always easy. No, it's not. It's exceptionally hard. You know, when we go into um, March and we close down, we've got to look at it and what we can do to actually create money to keep us going. And then we get to the end of the lockdown and we've got to rebuild the business. Because a huge amount of people after three months get into um, normal weekly practices. And that was going to um, the supermarket to buy their food, support, food and drink supply for the week. And they didn't want to come out. They got into, into the habit of being at home. So we spent the next couple of months encouraging those people back, only to have the guidelines changed again. So we've got to start a business again. Um, as I'm saying, there's just um, there's no consistency, and we need consistency. Whether the government actually chooses a consistent format to move forward with, and it proves to be wrong, at least if we could leave it in place for six months or whatever, instead of changing it on a weekly basis. And the other thing that confuses it is that it's just not central government guidelines that are regularly spewed out, excuse the term, but they are. But it's when they're announced alongside the Scottish alternatives, the Welsh alternatives, the Irish alternatives, and then everybody gets them mixed up. They've got to be clear. Like a classic example to me, I don't know if this may sound small fish to a lot of people, but the classic example is this new three-tier system with the lowest level being medium. Have you ever heard of such insanity in your life? The next is high and then very high. Well, if I'm not mistaken, medium as an adjective means between two extremes. So how's it tier one? And then when did we ever hear a government use such terms as very high? It's as if they think they're speaking to uneducated people who are unable to understand the difference between low, medium, and high. If somebody could explain that to me, why, and I know it's, it's wrong, the medium tier is the lowest tier. They've got to get their act together and they've got to put their message forward in a way that's understandable immediately by the population of this country. I do think you're very right in the sense that it's so easy to get some of the guidelines confused and mixed up and there is a need for transparency and clarity in the government's leadership and perhaps it has been lacking at times over the uh, the last few months for sure. And I think that the deviation in strategy, as you've said there, between the um, devolved administration certainly doesn't help the case there either. And then on top of that, there's also sort of media influence, things becoming distorted there as it's fed through to the general populace. So that again, 
seen is another problem. And quite often, directors and executives are finding themselves having to take the lead, bypass the news completely, and just go onto the government website and try and decipher complicated guidelines for themselves. And again, have you been through this? Have you been through this uh, guidelines, Scott? I we, am, we've, got, yes. we've, got four, we've got four pubs in this village, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, four pub strokes, very strong. And whenever the initial uh, guidelines come out, um, all the landlords read them and come up with different answers because they're guidelines. Mm. They've got to come out with a clear message. You can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. Otherwise, it's down to people like myself to bring in systems and operations that I think are suitable to keep people safe. Whereas we're supposed to have a health department and a government that can surely, to God, give clear um, messages and clear directions without any, um, what's the word I'm looking for, room for mistake. Mm. Um, Otherwise, we open just not our customers and staff open to the virus, but we open ourselves up to potential um, fines um, from local government. It's true, isn't it, that guidelines do have to be a lot more black and white and not open to interpretation, as it were, because quite frankly, this might be where the risks are being heightened and there may be problems. Correct, 100%. So in, over the um, so do do carry on, Duncan. Yes. No, no, that's fine. Mm. I'm quite happy with what you said there. Yeah, and um, I think certainly over the course of the uh, the next few months, as we enter the uh, the colder time of year, and we obviously end up having to persist with the new normal and continue to grapple with this problem, this does need to become much much more clearer for business leaders, um, and. As well as hoping that that does indeed come to pass and government guidelines are no longer as sort of muddled and confusing as they are, what else are you hoping to see over the course of the year, the next few months? And where indeed are you hoping the business is by this time next year? Well, working on the basis we've got business left because mm-hmm. we don't know what's to come, do we? But let's say it doesn't get any worse. We're down in Hampshire, in a little village called Old, Old Basing, as you said. And the fact that um, it's mainly the elderly that live around this area. So they um, have tended to look after themselves very well. Um, So the chances, touch wood, of COVID um, breaking out down here to Tier 1, I would imagine, is very, very low. So we should be still in business this time next year. As I said, I would like um, the government to be um, totally clear on what they expect from my sort of business, i.e. pubs and restaurants. None of the dilly-dallying about and don't, don't change the message every two weeks or month or whatever else. At least give us the opportunity to put a new uh, business model into place and let it run so we can get some benefit from it and long-term benefit. And I would also say the fact that they should also sit down and actually consider about how safe it would be um, taking maybe the younger out because the younger people don't seem to think they're ever going to... um, They just think they're indestructible. 
But in well-run pubs and restaurants, they should rely on the landlord to implement those guidelines properly and stick by them, as we do. Yeah? Mm. And it would be safer for people to drink in pubs and eat in restaurants like ours, where the customers know that everything in our place is set up on a safety basis. And we don't allow people to sing and dance and move tables and whatever else. So they're in um, an environment that is strictly monitored. And let's see a bit of confidence from the gov- from the government in terms of how we run our premises. We certainly That's all do I can ask for at this that, moment yeah. in time. Mm. Sorry? And I can understand that, Duncan. It is something that the hospitality industry certainly does need to see far more decisive leadership and far more of an understanding as well, uh, because I think quite often the the sector is unfairly blamed for arising cases when, quite frankly, so many operators such as yourselves are doing all that they can to um, keep things um, as they are, make sure that um, safety measures are in place. But there are people out there that just don't listen to the rules. Listen, the simplest way around about it, Scott, would be to come to people who are sensible in the way they run their businesses, such as ourselves. And this sounds as if I'm, go- I, I, I'm, I'm a grass, but I'm not. I mean, as a landlord here, everything that's going on in the area. And we know the fact that there are certain pubs that um, don't care and they pack people in and whatever else. Well, if we've heard that, the police must have heard it. Why don't the police just go along and actually take away the licences from those premises? And that would stop any of this mucking about. And it would mean that the number of pubs would reduce. I've not got a problem with that. If they're not responsible, they shouldn't be operating in the first place. And it would actually give confidence in the people in the community, the fact that the pubs that remain, everybody knows that they're actually complying with the laws as they should be. Mm. Because the ones that don't comply will not be open. I think you're very, very right in what you're saying there. And I certainly do hope that some sense is starting to uh, be shown toward the uh, the industry and steps such as this are taken because I think we will start to see significant progress if that is the case. Um, Duncan, I have to say, I mean, we are running just about out of time on the uh, the programme today, but it has been a very enlightening and intriguing experience having you come on to the programme to actually share your views with us. And I actually think that over the next few months, given that things are likely to have changed substantially just a matter of weeks from now, that it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see what has changed in the time between our discussions. I love that, Scott. I would love that because um, we take a keen interest in it. It's our future. And I think uh, the more uh, people talk about it in a sensible format, uh, the quicker we'll get a a reasonable outcome. And I also think... um there's right that there's rightfully people bemused out there by the recent government's advertising campaign um, against sort of going towards the hospitality sector and instead finding more lucrative roles in the digital industry and in cyber because businesses are starting to struggle because of COVID. In reality, there are going to be opportunities in the industry. There still are, and especially once we do come out of this. So it's time to really start to show some leadership, take us into the future with some decisiveness. 
Duncan, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. And most importantly, with everything that's still going on in the world, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still happening. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that we'll be out of this rut sooner rather than later, one way or another. (laughs) We'll see, Scott. (laughs) Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. We'll certainly see. It was a pleasure to welcome Duncan Kerr, director at the Bolton Arms in Old Basing, onto the programme today. I would like to reiterate that last message there to every one of our listeners tuning in as well. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, Next up on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord. Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership and serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He's been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists 
is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, 
why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shut, cut, uh, shut down. 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.